Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. Lord, you have preserved it for us for all of the centuries, Lord, and you speak to us through it by your Holy Spirit. There are times, Lord, when uh, you break through and give us a message in our hearts and in our minds that sometimes takes us by surprise. You tap us on the shoulder, you confront us face to face with the truth of your word, and you call us to do a work for you that we never would have dreamed of before. God, I pray this morning that as we look at this particular text in your word, that if there's someone here wrestling or someone um, that's listening via video that uh, is wrestling with a call, that you would clarify and make it clear, Lord God, what you're calling them to do. For all of us, Lord God, I know you invite us to walk deeper with you. And so we pray, our Father, that your Holy Spirit would be strong in this word today. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Here's a question that I would like you to wrestle with this morning. The few of you that are here, God is speaking to you, right? And to me. What is it that moves a sane, well-adjusted people from the comforts of the couch to the demands and hardships associated with engagement in our world's problems? Think about that. What is it that, that moves people to do that? What is it that would cause a man, for instance, like Martin Luther, to go against all odds, risk his life, take on the most formidable religious institution of the known world at that time, which would eventually change the face of Christianity for all eternity? Why does anyone ever sign up voluntarily for the rigors and challenges and heartbreaks associated with ministering to and serving other people. Why do many of you and people that aren't here today work full-time jobs and you step forward and say, I'll volunteer to be a youth leader or a Sunday school teacher or, you know, work in the hope chest or the, the food pantry? I'll lead a small group. What causes that? What causes a team of ordinary American men and women and teenagers to volunteer to raise thousands of dollars, take off work, take off school, take their vacation time, get on a plane, and go serve the poor in Mexico? What is it that compels a man or a woman to step into a, a position of leadership in a local church where they could just do about anything else? and probably get a lot more accolades for it. What is it that causes regular everyday people, moms and dads, singles and marrieds, couples, to voluntarily give themselves to attending prodigals, or serving the homeless, or visiting prisoners, or befriending the lonely, or caring for those with disabilities in a quiet, unlit corner of the world where no one ever sees and no one ever thanks them for it? What force is powerful enough to do that in someone's life? Now, as I debated what to preach today, as I, and especially as I think about rounding out the last couple of messages before I pass the baton and move into a whole different realm of ministry, I came to realize that there's an area involved in this that I haven't addressed for a while, and that is the crisis of what various people have called a holy discontent. You know what I mean by that? It's a heart not content with the same things that God's heart's not content with. In an article written for Discipleship Journal, Jamie Winship wrote these words. He said, quote, contentment is desirable, even a virtue, isn't it? Yes, when properly understood. But for a believer, a wrong understanding of contentment can have serious negative effects. Okay, think about that for a minute. Too often we mistake complacency for contentment. For instance, according to the scripture, contentment is totally appropriate when applied to the area of God's material provision for our lives, right? 1 Timothy 6, 8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Hebrews 13, 5, keep yourselves free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or I'll never forsake you. 
Philippians 4, 11, Paul says, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And on and on it goes. There are plenty of other verses like that. However, Throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, we can find examples of those who were too easily satisfied and became complacent. This wrong understanding of contentment can rob believers of their passion for Christ and for the lost. But every now and then we find great scriptural examples of people who were agitated about the same thing God was upset about and they were not content to sit idly by. They possessed a holy discontent. For example, Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, Moses, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard the sounds of their cries. I'm concerned about their suffering, and I'm going to rescue them. And then in verse 10, he says, and I'm going to use you to do it, Moses. But what happened before to lead Moses to this point? I like the way one man explained it. He says, Moses is walking out, looking on behalf of his own countrymen, his fellow Jews, and he sees this Egyptian guy just beating the daylights out of this poor slave. Something rises up inside of Moses, the sights, the sounds of blood spattering. He just couldn't take it anymore, and he kind of snapped, Right? Scriptures say in verse 12 of Exodus 2, glancing this way and that, he came to the defense of his countrymen. Pulls the Egyptians off the Hebrew guy and they start fighting. Moses winds up killing the Egyptian. And he buried him in the sand. And the text goes on in verse 13. The very next day, Moses goes out and he's going to look at what's going on with his fellow countrymen again. And this day he sees two Jewish guys beating on each other. Same story, right? He screams at one guy, what are you doing? Why are you beating your fellow Hebrew? Our people are in forced labor. We get beaten on by the Egyptians. Don't fight with each other. That has some relevance, doesn't it? Moses sees all this oppression and frustration. He takes him to the absolute edge of his emotional limits where he thinks, I can't stand all of this. Fast forward a few frames to the infamous burning bush story, okay? Exodus chapter 3, which I just referenced. And what I think really is happening there, says one pastor, is God is saying, Moses, what you saw those two days that made you so unbelievably angry and frustrated, what you saw when the Egyptian guy was beating the daylights out of the Hebrew slave, and what you saw when those two Hebrew brothers were beating each other made you frustrated and angry and you felt hopeless about their situation. I've been hearing the same cries. I've been hearing the suffering of my people. I can't stand it either. So your heart's aligned with mine now. So I'm going to intervene from heaven and I'm going to assign you the leadership here on earth to help me in this relieving of this suffering. I'm assigning you in part because I see that you're stirred up in your spirit about the same thing I'm stirred up in my spirit about. I see your emotion. I see you're a man who can't stand idly by when people are oppressed and beaten up. I see what's been raging in you. I'm going to use it in a positive way to set my people free. Loose translation, right? You see, what's happening here, as one man has said, is that God's heart and Moses' heart were aligned perfectly around this intense frustration and the oppression of the Israelites. That's the key to understanding what moves people to act on a holy discontent. Let me approach this from a totally different angle for a moment. Many of you will get this perfectly, especially if, you, especially if you're older than 50 years old. And I'm looking around the room, and probably most of us are. I heard a well-known pastor use this illustration at a leadership conference years ago. I referenced it just recently. But as a guy then in his 50s, when I heard this the first time, I could very much relate to this. When I was growing up, there was a cartoon that my brothers and I would watch on TV. It was a cartoon character named Popeye. Right? Popeye the what? Popeye the sailor man. And he had a girlfriend named 
olive oil. She was a traffic stopper. <laughs> she made men whistle and dogs bark. And when someone would threaten the well-being of olive oil, Popeye would feel his blood pressure rising up, pulse racing, and he would say the words that a whole generation of Americans had burned into their psyche. He would say, you can say it with me, that's all I can stand, I can't stands no more. Right? Dubious grammar. But he was a sailor man. What do you want? See, Pop opened this can of what? Spinach. Supernatural strength would flow into his body, most often his forearms, maybe a little in his biceps. And then he would have this unstoppable power. What a show that was, right? But that one line there, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more. That means something. Let me ask you, what can't you stand? What can't you stand? Another biblical example, besides Moses, would be Nehemiah. You know the story, right? He's cupbearer to the king. Jerusalem's in, in, in ruins, and it affects him. The surrounding nations are starting to think that his God is a weak God, and he can't stand it. It's building up inside of him. And he, he go, the longer he thinks about it and the longer it goes on, the more he starts thinking, that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more. And so he gets permission, and he goes and rebuilds the wall. 52 days, he works day and night, but what got him in the game? What got him there? A holy discontent, right? He couldn't stand the thought of the city of God in disrepair, embarrassing the name of God. What can't you stand? You ought to know as a Christian. And if you don't know, you ought to seek God's heart in it. And you ought to pay attention to what God is raising up inside of you. Here's another one. The prophet Jeremiah started preaching at 20 years old to his own people who wouldn't listen to him for 40 years. 40 long years. Throughout that time, he was rejected, he was beaten, he was ignored, he was put in prison, and the opposition he faced was cruel and crushing, and more than once he felt like throwing in the towel and giving up. And yet he kept on preaching. And you know why? Jeremiah 20, verse 9, gives us a little hint. Here it is on the screen. But if I say, Jeremiah says, that I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary of holding it in. And I cannot endure it. What's he saying? I can't stand it no more. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul goes through a litany of the same exact experiences as he was opposed for preaching the gospel of Christ, yet is compelled by the same holy discontent. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, mimics this Jeremiah 20, verse 9, very closely. Paul says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Now I want to look a little deeper at another biblical example. One who was not so willing to compromise at all. One who feared God with such intensity that he feared nothing else on the face of the earth. He was a teenager. A teenager who faced extreme intimidation, yet his concern, commitment, confidence, and conviction propelled him to act when everyone around him stood frozen in their tracks. He was not willing to remain complacent. He had a holy discontent. And we need more of it today. We need people in the world and in the church who will stand up and say, that's all I can stand. I can't stand no more. This I have to get into and do. God is compelling me for woe is me if I do not do it. Turn to 1 Samuel 17. Very familiar story. You know it all. You probably could recite it. You've taught it in Sunday school. You've learned it in Sunday school probably as a child. But I want to give you some background here in 1 Samuel 17, the first four verses. 
Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Ezekah in Ephes Damim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and grew up, drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Skip down to verse eight. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, why do you come, up, come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. And again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, what's it say? They were dismayed and greatly afraid. It's talking about fear versus faith this morning, right? Al was referring to that. Look at what's happening to Israel. The king, Saul, at the words of this Philistine, they were greatly afraid. Now all of a sudden the scene shifts, okay? Like a movie, another scene shift. Shifts from the bellowing of a giant to the bleeding of sheep. Enter David, the youngest of eight boys. And look at verses 12 to 19. Now David was the son of Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And Jesse was old in the days of Saul, advanced in years among men. The three older sons of Jesse had gone after Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the second to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. Now the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's flock at Bethlehem. Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. Then Jesse said to David, his son, now take for your brothers an ephah of this roasted grain and these 10 loaves and run to the camp your brothers of your brothers. Bring also these 10 cuts of cheese to the commander of their thousand. Look to the welfare of your brothers and bring back news of them. For Saul and they had all the men of Israel and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the flock and the keeper, took the supplies, went as Jesse had commanded him and came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. Israel and, his, and the Philistines drew up in battle array, army against army. Then David left his baggage in the care of the baggage keeper and ran to the battle line and entered the, in order to greet his brothers. And as he was talking with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines and he spoke these same words and David heard them. Now when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. There it is again. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. So then David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? That's David's reaction. Versus being dismayed and greatly afraid. Teenager. And it's right here that we see David's true colors emerge for the first hint of his holy discontent is revealed. And this is the way it's revealed. And if you want to know what kind, how, how a holy discontent rises up in you, what I'm about to tell you throughout this passage 
are the things that the elements that will clue you in that you are operating or God is raising up in you a holy discontent. The first one is this, a holy discontent will be clothed with a concern for God's perspective. God's perspective, okay? That's verses 26 and 27 here, okay? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? It's called the fear of God. It's meaning a deep-seated reverence and awe for the almighty God. It also includes a personal concern for all that God represents. And you know what God wants? God wants Christians that are concerned, not complacent. Okay? There's no such thing as a complacent champion for the faith. David wasn't willing to sit quietly and listen to this giant's bogus claims. He couldn't stomach it, and neither should we. He couldn't stomach it. He, why do you think, for example, that God was pleased with the... Who, let, me, let me rephrase that. Who do you think God was pleased with? The men of Israel who shrunk away from their responsibility in fear or the one who was described in both Old Testament and New Testament passages as a man after God's own heart. Which do you think God was pleased with? Let me ask you, do you have a pulse that beats in sync with God's heart? Do I? Are we concerned about the same thing that God is concerned with. That's one of the characteristics of a person seized by a holy discontent. He's concerned or she's concerned for the reproach of God's people. Verse 26 says, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Are you concerned about the reproach of God's people? How much does it concern you that people shame the church, trash Christianity, and all those who attempt to follow the truth? Do you shrink back in fear or even shame when society rails the church of Jesus Christ in general, maybe this congregation in specific, or any one of your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or does it tear you apart inside not because reproach is brought upon you, but because it's leveled ultimately against God's name and God's bride. That's the critical watershed. Are you concerned for the reproach of God's people? Another thing, person with a holy discontent is concerned for the reputation of God's name. Okay, God's name for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? David couldn't believe what he was hearing or what he was seeing. The gods of the Philistines were lifeless idols, but the God that David served, the same one that we serve, by the way, same God, right? Isn't it? Isn't he? That God is alive, David said, the living God, not a lifeless idol. He preserves, he refreshes, he saves, he sustains, he protects, he provides for, and he delivers his people, amen? Why were the armies of Israel cowering in fear if, as if this God did not exist at all? David never lost his concern for God's reputation. It's right there in verse 26, it's in verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since, why? Since he has taunted the armies of who? The living God. Verse 45, same thing. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. Know what David had? He had the Popeye principle burned into his soul, didn't he? He couldn't stand the fact that some unbeliever was 
taunting and blaspheming and defaming the living God, and no one, no one was doing anything about it. Are you clothed with David's kind of concern? Does it at all stir us up when the God we love, the Father who has allowed his only son, Jesus, to die a brutal death on the cross so that you and I could live a joy-filled life with him in eternity, is taunted and defamed? David never got used to that kind of trash talk, ever. And he wasn't complacent about it. He was clothed with a concern, concern about the reproach of God's people and the reputation of God's name. A concern for God's perspective, in other words, is the cloak of a holy discontent. The second element of what makes up a holy discontent is that it will be fueled by a commitment to God's purpose. Fueled by a commitment to God's purpose. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David and said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart, for you've come down in order to see the battle. But David said, what have I done now? Isn't that just like a little brother to say that to their older brother? What have I done now? Wasn't, just a, wasn't it just a question? And then he turned away from him to another and said the same exact thing about what would happen to the man who overcame this Philistine. And the people answered the same thing as before. You know what? God wants Christians that are devoted, not diverted. And we are a society and a church, I myself, so easily diverted. So easily diverted, right? God wants champions not chameleons. David would not let the pressure of his peers, even his own family, divert him from his objective. And we have so many other things that are diverting us from our objective now. So many things. David's trust in the Lord's power to overcome this giant obstacle inspired him to make a move. But his brother accuses him of arrogance not faithfulness. The Living Bible translates Eliab's sarcastic comment in more understandable terms for us. This is how it reads. What are you doing around here anyway? What about the sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know what a cocky brat you are. You just want to see the battle. You ever experienced that? How many of you came to Christ before anyone else in your family? Raise your hand. A few of you. How did they react to your newfound concern for God and his truth? Too often it's family and friends and even more mature Christians that get in the way of your dedication by their intimidating comments, isn't it? But David just let it roll. Verses 29 and 30, he just let it roll didn't even bother him. He wasn't daunted. His commitment to God's purpose would not be moved. If it wasn't going to be shaken by the giant he was facing, it certainly wasn't going to be diverted by the sarcastic comments of his brothers or his peers. The problem is that at times we are the source of the comments against others, aren't we? But as uh, one pastor once said, well-known pastor, Chuck Swindoll, he said, if we're not able to face the giant ourselves, we need to stop criticizing others who, like David, trust God and prepare to do battle. David's determination finally got him an audience with the king. And it's here that we finally, that we really see the inner roots of what a holy discontent and the actions of faith really kind of emerge here. He's clothed with a concern for God's perspective first, He's fueled by the commitment to God's purpose, second. And thirdly, we find that a holy discontent exhibits confidence in God's power. Confidence in God's power. And it's not just lip service, by the way. It's not just something he says. It's something he acts on because he believes it. The remarkable thing about fearing God, wrote 
Oswald Chambers, is that when you fear God, you don't fear anything else. When you truly fear God. Now, let me ask you, you think that's a really, is that really a true statement? Is it true in your life? Do we stand head and shoulders above the world wearing the armor of faith? Or do we adapt our clothing to the color of those around us, chameleons? God wants Christians that are confident, not cowering, right? There's no question about David's confidence here. Look at verse 31. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail on the count of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now, picture the scene. Okay? Here's Saul the king and David the sheep herder, the teenager. Saul wasn't quite so confident in David, however. Right? Look at verse 33. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, while he has been a warrior from the days of his youth. This guy's got mileage. He's killed a lot of people. He's pretty big. Who are you? Right? But that's the difference. David had no confidence in himself his security rested in the Lord's protection. Saul's words of disbelief mimic the words of Israel 400 years earlier when Joshua and Caleb came back from spying out the promised land and reported that God would bring them through regardless of the giants that they faced and the giant obstacles that they faced. You can read that in Numbers 13. Well, what's happening here? Saul is making a wrong comparison. He's pitting a youth against the giant, right? A pimple-faced shepherd against a proven warrior. Of course it was a ludicrous comparison. And what most of us don't realize is that the same comparisons are being made by you and by me all the time. How can we face the giants that threaten us? What chance do you and I have of stemming the tidal wave of unbelief in the society that we live in? None. We have no chance. Not by ourselves, anyway. But who ultimately controls what is allowed to go on in society anyway? Who? Is it me? Is it you? Or is it God who is our strength? Is it really my voice or your voice that will change a society's mind about the issues of immorality and violence and divorce and abortion or sexual deviance? Or is it God's voice working through me and you in a truthful but loving approach? Is it the strong arm of the government that will prevail over godless giants or the rock of God's word when it is accurately aimed and presented with skill? Friends, a holy discontent that is clothed with confidence in God's providence, in his protection, and in his power will keep us making the correct comparisons and not being consumed by someone else's faulty comparisons. Why? Because first of all, you can be confident in the odds. You can be confident in the odds when you are confident in God's power, right? What are the odds? What are the odds? The odds are in your favor when your confidence is in God and not your own ability. Correctly identifying past victories in your life fosters this trust in God's power. It did in David's case. Let's read about it. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. 
Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Now, having read those verses, it seems at first glance that David was relying on his own strength, right? Hey, this is what I've done. I've killed the lion, I've killed the bear. It was no problem. This Philistine's going down. Seems like he's relying on his own strength. But in the next verse, the very next verse, David places credit where it belongs, in God's hand. God delivered him in those situations, and David knew it. And when you are doing the will of God, the odds are in your favor. Amen? Amen. Look, at David said in verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. See where his faith was placed? And we can do the same thing, can't we? When we go into battle with the mindset of Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? When you look back at the fearful experiences in your past as a Christian, it should give you confidence knowing that God has brought you through those experience, experiences, right? And I've had plenty in my own life. And at the time, they're pretty fearful. But you can have confidence even though you're shaking in your boots, right? You trust, you have faith in God to bring you through. And then you look back at the other side and you went, why did I ever doubt? Why did I ever doubt? Because we're human, that's why. But the odds are in your favor. Odds are he'll do it again. In fact, it's a promise, not just chance. Hebrews 13, 5. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What shall man do to me? What shall man do to me? When you're confident in those kinds of odds, it means also that you can be confident in the outcome. Not just in the odds, but in the outcome. Verse 37, again, David said, it was God who delivered me from the lion and the bear, and he'll deliver me from this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. So when we realize who's in control, we can be, can be confident about how it's going to turn out. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves as to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. If you're confident in the odds and in the outcome, then it follows that you can be confident in God's offensive. Look at verse 38. Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put a bronze helmet on his head, and he clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And so David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I've not tested them. And David took them off. He took his stick in his hands and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. Notice what Saul attempted to do here. What did he attempt to do? He had no confidence in God. Saul didn't. Because if he had, he would have slain the giant already. Right? Instead, he retreated to a position of perceived safety. This is the man, by the way, that was chosen to be king because he was head and shoulders above the rest of the people, according to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Not only is Saul a coward here, but he lets a boy go into the battle and promises him a reward. Yeah, you can give a big reward when you don't think the outcome's going to be great, right? But worse yet, Saul tries to clothe David with his own weaponry. 
Let me ask you, let me, let me say this, friends, don't ever attempt to fight the battle in somebody else's armor. Unless, of course, it's Christ's armor. It's the only armor that you can wear to fight the battle. It can't be done if you're using someone else's armor. Unfortunately, many churches are famous for that kind of thing. They try to equip a new generation of believers or a new leader with a suit of armor that they cannot possibly walk in. Is it any wonder why there are so many casualties? They often discourage people from using their own individuality or creativity in the ministry or the gifts that God has given them because, well, we've never done it that way before. And so they get weighed down with a suit of armor that does not fit them and send them on their way to fight against a world of giants that they can't even walk in this armor. Aren't all of us guilty about that to some extent? Guilty of that? Please, all right, a little aside here. Please, 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 please. Do not do that with Chris after I leave. Just don't do it. Okay? Let me tell you, God wants individuals that are confident in him, not carbon copy clones who are trusting in an image. Okay? Chris has his own set of armor that God has given him. He's going to do it the way that God leads him. I'm convinced of that. He's got a good heart. He wants to do God's will. He wants to lead this church toward what God wants, right? Don't try to make him into somebody he's not. All right, enough. <laughs> it's time that we stop trying to clad ourselves with untested armor and let the Holy Spirit clothe us with real armor, the real armor of God. We can be confident in God's offensive. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. It is true that we live in the world, but we do not fight from worldly motives. The weapons we use in our fight are not the world's weapons, but God's powerful weapons, which we use to destroy strongholds. We destroy false arguments. We pull down every proud obstacle that is raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive and make it to obey Christ. Amen? We've got to be confident in the tools that God has given each of us individually and that he will use them to win the battle. David didn't fight in Saul's armor. It was way too restricting for him. He withstood the giant in the clothes that God gave to him, a sling and some stones. This is what he knew. This was the war clothes of a shepherd. Amen? Verse 40. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Ever wonder why he chose five stones, by the way? Uh, look up 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 to 22, especially verse 22, and see if you can maybe derive something out of that. That's all I'll say. Make sure you look it up. 2 Samuel 21, 15 to 22. Holy discontent exhibits confidence in God's power. Okay, God's power. Fourthly, a holy discontent steps out with a conviction of God's presence. A conviction of God's presence. Verse 41. Then the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with handsome appearance. The Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, this day, the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Talk about a heart 
that's after God's heart. Right? It's, the one, it's one thing to have confidence in God, but it's another thing to be convinced that he will be there and he will come through for you. Especially when you've got a giant of a problem facing you and coming right at you. See, the conviction of God's presence and God's protection is what separates a holy discontent from a great human cause. Let me say that again. Conviction of God's presence and protection is what separates a holy discontent from a great human cause. Because confidence without conviction is arrogance in its purest form, right? Someone has rightly said, while I believe it's important to pay attention to whatever, whenever something stirs in you, I don't believe that every time something affects you deeply, it automatically becomes your God-given calling. You need to meditate on that for a while. Just because something stirs up inside of you doesn't necessarily mean, in and of itself, that God has called you to be the champion of that cause. But what I do believe, he says, is that we should all be looking for that one cause, that one problem, that one purpose that grabs us by the throat and just won't let us go. The kind of holy discontent that eventually leads us almost to the lunatic fringe where we say, I can't stand it no more. I just have to do something. I think when you get to that point, he says, you'll have your burning bush experience and God will say, now let's go. Okay? The need is not always the call for you. It's a call but it might not necessarily be the call that God is placing on your life. He may use that to get you there, but you have to be very discerning. And so a conviction of God's presence makes us humble, not headstrong. That's when you know you're starting down the right path, if you're approaching it with humility and not with headstrong arrogance. Again, verses 41 to 45 I don't need to read them again. But the Philistine is taunting David. And David says to him, look, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. It's not about David's fight, is it? This is about what is happening to God's people. This is about what is happening to God's name from this Philistine. He has a humble approach. This shepherd boy armed with sticks and stones was quite a humble sight compared to this Goliath, right? Nine foot nine, weight of his armor was 125 pounds. The weight of his spear was 33 pounds. Goliath tried to intimidate him and humiliate him, but David's focus was not in that direction. He never compared himself to the giant, did he? He never compared himself to the giant. He compared the giant to God. That's different, isn't it? What do you do when you're confronted with Goliath-sized problems? How do you respond? Do you compare yourself to the giant problem you have? Or do you look at it comparing the problem with the giant-sized God you serve? 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. We never remember this verse. I hear people quote it all the time. But always, you know, it's not often that we see people act on it. But you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. For greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That's not just something to put on a plaque on your wall. So you've got to have a humble approach, first of all. Secondly, a humble attitude, verse 45. Again, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. David never forgot his focus. He came in the name of the Lord. Not for his own glory, 
The battle is not ours, folks. It never is. It's always his, right? Your strength is not in how many books you've read on living the Christian life. It's not on how long you've been a believer. It's not your position in the church or in how many scriptures you can quote from memory. When you come up against a giant that you cannot handle, you need to bank on the fact that your strength is in the name of the Lord of hosts. Psalm 20, verse 7 says this, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. You know who wrote those words? David. God's protection makes us humble, not headstrong. Also, a conviction of God's presence keeps us purposeful, not presumptuous. Verse 46. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands. I'll strike you down, remove your head. I'll give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky, the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. We're talking about purpose, not presumption here. David's strong words weren't presumptuous, but they were based on a God-honoring twofold purpose. Number one, that all the earth may know, okay? Not that David is a great warrior in Israel, that all the earth may know what? What's it say? That there is a God in Israel and that his deliverance is not by power. It's not by might, but it's by his spirit. See? In David. The battle is God's. We get so sidetracked from that in the ministry and in life. We start out with that attitude, but then all of a sudden when the victory starts to come, maybe our mind shifts a little bit and we start to think, oh boy. That was pretty good what I just did, right? But a holy discontent dresses itself with the kind of conviction that David had. But the crowning article of a true holy discontent is the final one. The fifth one, a holy discontent will experience the confirmation of God's promise. Let's look at the last couple of verses here. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. God comes through. Notice David's aggressiveness here. That's what anyone with a holy discontent can have. We should run quickly toward the giant that looms wearily in front of us, face it head on, stand tall, deal with it, be confident in the armor that God has clothed you with and use it skillfully and to the best of your ability. And note this, David, by the way, was an expert with his weapon. He was skilled. He was practiced. He was accurate with what God had given him. So to be God's warrior, to fight and win according to God's way, you know what it demands? It demands expertise and skill and control under the power of the Holy Spirit of the gifts that he has given you. Are you practiced in the offensive weaponry that God has given you? You know what those two offensive weapon, weapons are? Come on, armor bearers. Tell me. Prayer and the word of God. Prayer and the word of God, the sword of the spirit. Are you practiced in prayer and skilled in the word? With all the weapons that Satan has, with all his intimidating power and threatening words, he is no match for the man or woman who is clothed with a holy discontent, armed with the armor and weapons of God, and is practiced at using them. Let's read Ephesians 6 this week as part of your devotions. Whatever giants you're facing today, regardless of how overbearing they may seem, regardless of how intimidating they may appear, 
regardless of how threatening their claims, and they may not even be people, they may be circumstances or fears or anxieties that you're struggling with. Whatever they are, you will not win the battle by relying on an earthly arsenal. Though it may be helpful to you, you're certainly not discounting them, but you will ultimately win those battles by relying on the Lord. Let me ask you one more time. What can't you stand? What is it that brings you to your boiling point? In God's name. It could be a lot of different things. Poverty, homelessness, injustice, lack of truth in people's lives. That, that drives me insane. That's my thing. That's my holy discontent. What is it? Is it watching over-entertained, under-challenged young people drift further and further away from God, leave church, and never come back? As one pastor put it, is it passionless worship? Is it crooked politicians? What is it? I think you should figure out what wrecks you. Because chances are it's already wrecking the heart of God. And what wrecks the heart of God aligns with what, what wrecks you. That's when God will give you the David and Goliath experience and tap you on the shoulder and say, you know what? You're at the Popeye moment of your life right now. When you're saying that's all I can stand, I can't stand no more, and now you're ready, and I'm going to ask you to align yourself with me and get busy. Because you're going to have my power and you're going to have my presence going to go with you into the battle. You're going to have my protection and we're going to change something in this broken world. I want to leave you with a couple of practical challenges that I heard during that leadership conference. Quickly, if you have difficulty identifying your holy discontent, number one, don't give up too soon. Pray. Listen to God. Keep praying. Keep listening. God, give God time to show you what your holy discontent is. I encourage you. Again, here's number two. Travel outside your normal circuits. Go where you don't normally go. See, it's comfortable in here. Trust me, I'm going out there into the wild blue yonder soon. And uh, it's a little scary. But it's time. Go where you don't usually go. Keep exposing your heart to the needs of the world. Something's going to grab hold of you, and eventually that will become your holy discontent. Don't give up too soon. Keep experimenting. Third recommendation, a bit counterintuitive. When you find your holy discontent, feed it. Feed it. It's going to make you crazy, but feed it. And then he says one final thing, don't let your holy discontent beat you up over the course of the years to the point where you become a little bit hopeless about the situation. You know, it's easy to become discouraged when you're operating out of your holy discontent and you're not seeing change happen, right? Look at Jeremiah, preached for 40 years. Nobody ever wanted to listen to him. And yet he stuck to it. You can't lose hope. You have to continue to believe that with God all things are possible and that you have to stay rock solid. You have to be the steady one who continues to believe that people who are far from God can come home and that's what broken, what's broken in this world can be fixed through God's power. That what needs restoring can be restored through God's strength. And that people who need to come into a new way of life can and will often if you stay faithful and truthful to Jesus Christ. And one day Jesus Christ is going to return. Guaranteed. He's coming back. And he's going to make all wrongs right. And then there won't be any more reason for having a holy discontent. No more. No more. A holy discontent will be centered in the Lord. Concern yourself with God's perspective. Commit yourself to God's purpose. Become confident in God's power. Be convinced of God's presence and watch God prevail.
He'll confirm your faith with the promise of victory. As one man has said, never underestimate the power of God and stop, stop overestimating the confidence of the enemy. Today's the day for action. Face your giant. Load up your sling with a rock, the rock of your salvation, Jesus Christ. Embrace yourself for the experience of a lifetime. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us an example of what it means to have a holy discontent. You've given us many. And Lord, sometimes when we hear these messages and we're prompted to think, well, I can never be like that. You know, Lord, would you give us all confidence in the fact that all of your champions began from small, humble beginnings. <laughs> and they stayed humble in the course of the action because you were their God and you went before them. And you were their focus. Help our focus be on you. Wherever that leads us, may our confidence be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, rose from the dead to conquer death, and give us victory. So let us be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our toil will not be in vain in the Lord. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen.